This program is brought to you by Emory University. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker this morning. Dr. Sulin is professor of systematic theology at Wesley Theological Seminary, where he's been teaching since 1992. He received his MDiv from the Candler School of Theology and a PhD from Yale University. Among the courses he teaches at Wesley are systematic theology, ecclesiology, eschatology, and the theology of Jewish-Christian relations. He's the author and editor of several books, including most recently, The Divine Names and the Holy Trinity, Volume 1, Distinguishing the Voices, published in 2011. He's currently completing the second volume in that project, subtitled Voices in Counterpoint. And that will be published by Westminster John Knox Press. He's also an elder in the Virginia Conference of the United Methodist Church. The title of his lecture for us today is The Name of the Trinity in Wesleyan Perspective, an Ecosystem of Praise and Solidarity. Please join me in welcoming our speaker. Well, good, good morning, everybody. It's, it's fun to be back here. I was uh, a Master of Divinity student long ago before all, all this gorgeous uh, architecture went up. And it's fun to see it all happens like mushrooms in the night. It's amazing what happens if you go away for 25 years and, and come back and boom. So uh, it's, it's going to be, I, I hope, um, fun to think with you today about an aspect of the doctrine of the Trinity. And in particular, of the aspect we're going to look at and think about together is how we name the Trinity, and how we name the persons of the Trinity. Now, sometimes we may think that this is a uh, contemporary issue, and of course it is, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But it's actually a theme that goes back uh, deep into our theological roots. And it's a question that Charles Wesley uh, asks. And um, this is a lyric of Charles Wesley, and we'll look at it together. Uh, the great tremendous deity, whom three in one and one in three I to the world proclaim, inspire with purity and peace and add me to thy witnesses by telling me thy name. So I'm going to confess to you right out uh, front that I, I have a great deal of respect for John Wesley. Um, however, <laughs> I love Charles Wesley. And uh, I do not think we've yet taken the um, stature of Charles Wesley as uh, a theologian, a, a lyrical theologian. And um, so we're going to have an opportunity together to get to know just a little bit more the wonders of Charles Wesley as, as, a, as a lyrical theologian. Um, well, of course, the name of the Trinity then. Today, often, we think of that immediately with respect to contentious debates in the life of the church. What is the most appropriate way of naming the Trinity? Is it Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Is that permissible language at the seminary? Can it be uttered in chapel? Is it overwhelmingly used in the church? Uh, 
is um, perhaps a better way to approach the naming of the Trinity to emphasize different contextual ways of naming the Trinity that draw on insights of local tradition and speak to the living experience of communities that may not appear in kinship terms, in the traditional kinship terms. Well, I, I want to suggest that actually we have a lot to learn from Charles Wesley on this particular point. Because for Charles Wesley, the way we name the Trinity is not so much any one particular way, but it's really an ecosystem of multiple ways. The naming of the Trinity is not a single formula, but it's better understood as a kind of an equilibrium of different modes of speech, all of which are ultimately biblical, but which live and develop over time in Christian tradition. And Charles Wesley, I don't think, reflects on this at a second order level. He simply does it in his poetry and his theology in a powerful way. Um, the, the particular resource that we're going to be looking at today is uh, a collection of 188 hymns on the Trinity published in 1767. Hymns on the Trinity, Charles Wesley. 188 hymns, not at all well known. Uh, in its own day, it did not sell, uh, it was not one of those things that sold uh, in huge numbers. Um, but it's a treasure, and in fact, it is all, in all likelihood the largest collection of lyric poetry on the Trinity in the history of the church. And it is magnificent in its po poetic feeling, but also in the astonishing way in which he's able to uh, communicate so much of the elements of the teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity. All right, so let's, let's take a little look here and see what the elements of our ecosystem are. I'm going to suggest our ecosystem comprises at least three equally important ways of naming the Trinity. And a first pattern of naming is characterized by common nouns drawn from daily life. And you'll find this on our uh, handout. And I'm going to call this a pneumatological pattern of naming, a spirit-centered pattern of naming, because uh, of the association of this pattern with the Spirit's outpouring at Pentecost and the miracle of tongues, which permits the gospel to be heard and received in all sorts of local contexts. Um, this is also a pattern of naming the Trinity that goes way back before Charles Wesley. So I've given us just a small sampling of uh, examples from the tradition. The Odes of Solomon is so ancient that it uh, was at times part of the canonical scripture for some communities. And speaks of the persons of the Trinity as he who was milked, the cup, and she who milked. Uh, Catherine of Siena speaks of our table, our food, our server. Hildegard of Bingen, a brightness, a flashing forth, a fire. Richard of St. Victor, lover, beloved, and co-beloved. Well, this is something that Charles Wesley develops in his own uh, hymns and lyrics on the Trinity. So a uh, small sampling, God, word, breath, well, that's pretty familiar. We, we can recognize that from the scriptures. But how about uh, the one who allures, the one who assures, the one who bears witness, um, the one who draws, the one who sprinkles, the one who seals, and many of 
Charles's lyrics are actually developed in different stanzas, where each stanza is, represents a different person of the Trinity and highlights a different verb. Well, that's just scratching the surface. Um, I'm going to just give you an overview of many of the different common nouns that uh, Charles uses for the first person of the Trinity, the giver, fountain of deity, God who reigns, fountain of love, God of infinite compassion, pure universal love, great fountainhead of deity, fountain of divine compassion. Fountain is clearly a favorite word. But similarly, for the second person, the first person is the giver, the second person is the given, the true and living light. And this next pair is a fascinating one. The second person is glorious partner of the throne, but also partner of the sinful nature. So partner is a term that mediates between the eternal trinity and the economy. A partner on the throne, a partner of the sinful nature. The second person is the eternal sharer, the uncreated word, the second person of the three. And then we get to the third person, and he really gets going. Because we know that Charles is going to allocate a special place for the Holy Spirit. Rivers of raptures unknown, the glorious third, divine interpreter, indwelling God, spirit of joy unspeakable, uh, creator of the inward eye. Love that. Indubitable witness, spirit of purest love, and on and on and on. And as I say, these are simply collected from a collection of 188 of his lyrics. You know how many Charles has thought to have written over his whole life? Perhaps as many as 9,000. This is just a, a single collection of 188. So that's one aspect of our ecosystem. And itself already extremely various in the various forms that it can take. Uh, but we have another pattern. And this is pattern characterized by kinship language as we hear it uh, in the Gospels and is used by Christ is the vocabulary of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I'm going to call this a Christological pattern of naming because of its affinity with the risen Christ's appearance on the mountain in Galilee at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Because, of course, this is where Christ, in fact, commands to go forth and baptize in this name. This pattern uh, emphasizes, uh, it's, it's fascinating how commonly Charles does not use Father, Son, Holy Spirit language as an all-purpose language in every possible context. He uses it very selectively to underscore a certain number of uh, motifs that appear, appear, appear uh, many times. One, for example, is um, love. And perhaps the single most important is love. So in the handout, we've, gotten, we've got a begotten again, born from above. We join in the plan of infinite love. Son, Father, and Spirit, our Savior we see, and glory inherit through faith in the three. I'll observe, too, that uh, already in the begotten and born, we have language of both kinship language, certainly, but not exclusively male kinship language. Uh, it is actually a combination of uh, male and female uh, images and metaphors. Well, let's, let's look at a couple more examples. Nothing here can relieve till thyself I retrieve by a mystical birth from above. So the Augustinian theme, our hearts are restless until we find rest in thee. 
Come, Father and Son, with the Comforter down in the likeness of heavenly love. So the, uh, the advent of God, the arriving of God, the coming of God is associated with this and uh, the experience of divine love. Come, Father, Son, and Spirit, give. Give what? Thy love. Thy self. And lo, I live imparadised in thee. Magnificent. Um, so uh, it's fascinating how he can work so many variations on a simple set of themes. It's not all purpose language. It's associated with divine love, with the advent of divine love that elevates us into a new spiritual kinship community. All right. That would be already a fairly complex ecosystem. But it is not, and in fact, I would go so far as to say this is probably a sampling that represents the way the Christian ecosystem works in many contexts, a Christological pattern, a pneumatological pattern. Charles very, very clearly also has what I'm going to call a theological pattern. And this is associated with the sacred tetragrammaton, God's personal proper name. This is the name that God uh, reveals to Moses at the burning bush. And the name of God, we're going to have an opportunity to look at this from various angles. The, the form of the name that uh, Charles uses is Jehovah, uh, uh, a um, conventional form in his own day that attempts to transliterate the name into a vocalized form. And of course, it's still familiar to us in our hymns. Jehovah for Charles is not a name that means anything in particular. If you ask, what does it translate to? The answer is it doesn't translate to anything. It's a pure, personal, proper name. But what it signifies is God's uniqueness and oneness in a way that both signifies who God is and also the inexhaustible mystery that surrounds who God is. So God is identifiable, but God is not circumscribable. We can identify but not circumscribe God. Uh, Charles speaks of the name Jehovah as the ineffable name that goes all the way back to Philo. The incommunicable name, because God alone has it. It's not a name that creatures share. The wonderful name, this mysterious name and sovereign appellation. Uh, appellation. All right, let's take a look at an example here. The Lord our God is only one. One is Jehovah the Most High. Jehovah is his name alone who made and fills both earth and sky. So we see the emphasis on the unity of God, the oneness of God, the uniqueness of God. Jehovah is the Savior's name. Jehovah is the Spirit's too. And the three essentially the same is the eternal God and true. So we have uh, a way of speaking about the one God that emphasizes God's oneness and unity, unity and uniqueness, but it applies to all the persons of the Trinity. So now we can go back to the question that we asked before, that Charles asked. 
three, the great tremendous deity, whom three in one and one in three I to the world proclaim, inspire with purity and peace, and add me to thy witnesses by telling me thy name. Well, three persons there are, their record who bear, and Jehovah in heavenly places declare. But in Father and Son and Spirit made known, the witnesses three are essentially one. So what Charles has is an ecosystem of proper name, kinship term, common noun, all of which mutually interpret each other. The significance of any of these single strands cannot be understood by tearing it out of the context of the whole, nor, by implication, would it be appropriate for any one of these strands to overshadow, to uh, predominate, to become like the kudzu of, uh, of Christian liturgical life and swallow up the others. They are, uh, they are all equally the ways in which the three persons bear witness to themselves. Now, that Charles settles on these three patterns, it seems to me, is no accident. It is a reflection of the extraordinary sensitivity that he has, not merely to Christian tradition, although certainly to that, but to the language of scriptures themselves. Because in the scriptures, Old Testament and New, the language about God is consistently an uh, ecosystem of common now kinship language and proper name, all of which mutually interprets each other. And uh, as a way of just hinting at the connection with uh, scriptures, I've uh, invoked this passage from Exodus 20, 24. Wonderful promise after the giving of the Ten Commandments. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, all right, my name, in a, in, especially in the Old Testament context, is, is ordinarily always going to refer to the sacred tetragrammaton. That is God's Shem in a unique sense. And it signifies, as we've already said, God's uniqueness. But where we remember that name, what happens? I come to you, and I bless you. And each of those moments of God's name revelation, the announcing of the name, the advent of God, the blessing of God, unfolds in terms of a different mode of speech, proper name, uh, kinship language, and also common noun. So I would propose that when we look at the name of the Trinity in a Wesleyan perspective, or at least a Charles Wesleyan perspective, um, I haven't gone and tested this as much with John. I'm, I'm a little nervous. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to just spend my time with Charles for a while. Um, then, really, the name of the Trinity is an ecosystem of praise. But we cannot separ separate the church as an ecosystem of praise from the church as an ecosystem of solidarity. Because it is the nature of the church to be a community in solidarity, of course, initially with uh, the, the world in the life of the Trinity, but also uh, the, the, the church in and for the world. And now we're going to leave Charles behind, and we're going to move forward into how we think about ecclesiology.
We're not going to leave Charles entirely behind. We're still steering by him. But in recent ecumenical theology, it's become common to speak of the church as in terms of three biblical images. The church is the people of God, first person, the body of Christ, second person, and temple of the Holy Spirit. I want to link that language with Charles's insight and draw out the way in which the church is a community of solidarity uh, that exists, first of all, in solidarity with the Jewish people, worshiping the one God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And at this point, that pattern of naming the Trinity that's linked to the Tetragrammaton is a living, visible sign of the solidarity at the liturgical level that unites the church and the Jewish people. The reverence for God's sacred, personal, proper name. And in, and in fact, this is a name that unites Christians and Jews in a way that does not unite uh, either of those faiths with, say, Islam. Because the Tetragrammaton is not a name that figures within uh, the uh, piety of Islam. Well, here we have to interrogate Charles's particular way of understanding the Tetragrammaton. Charles belongs to a very long tradition of uh, honoring the Tetragrammaton in a vocalized form, Jehovah. Now, frequently today, we say Yahweh. This is very problematic when you measure it by the way in which the Tetragrammaton is honored in the New Testament itself. The point is not only that the Old Testament lifts up the Tetragrammaton, the point is that the New Testament does so. But it does so in a deeply Jewish way. It does so in a way that honors God's name by not directly pronouncing it and by using a variety of surrogates and substitutes in its place. Uh, Jesus' own piety is very strongly centered in the, the, the petition, hallowed be your name. First petition, glorify your name on earth. But Jesus does not say the name. And he does it because he's practicing reverence for the name in a way that accords with the, the practice of Second Temple Judaism. Well, I think that uh, as the church and the Methodist church has, since the Second World War, been engaged in a rethinking of its relationship to the Jewish people, this is also a topic that needs to be re-examined. Uh, the Methodist church has, uh, the, the Wesleys really have, in many ways, an exemplary theology of Judaism in their own day. Uh, but this has been developed in, in a, an extraordinary way since the Second World War. The United Methodist Church in 1996, together with many other churches, affirms uh, that in its document, Building New Bridges and Hope, the covenant God established with the Jewish people is irrevocable. That's a, that's a substantial doctrinal teaching that departs from what Christians traditionally affirmed about God's covenant with the Jews in, in previous centuries. It would not have been language that was deeply familiar uh, to John and Charles Wesley, certainly. But it is language that the United Methodist Church has appropriated today. 
and that redefines our understanding of our relationship to this community that also honors the Tetragrammaton. If you go into a synagogue service today, the prominence of the name, or if you say, say Kadesh, uh, which is all about God's name, you'll see the prominence of God's sacred name, and it's never pronounced. Similarly, in uh, the New Testament itself. So we need to, I think, uh, respect and understand the particular form in which Charles honors the name, but also become more sensitive to reclaiming the variety of surrogates for the name that are present in our own scriptures. Lord God, I am, spirit of holiness, the blessed, the power, majesty on high. Uh, contemporary liturgists are unfortunately not all of them equally sensitive to this issue. One who is very sensitive to this issue is uh, Gail Ramshaw, who is in the business of trying to uh, find out new ways of um, new, devising new Christianly appropriate surrogates for the divine name. And she has proposed, for example, the living one. So our pattern of naming God connects us with the Jewish people. But a different pattern of naming God, that's which is associated with common nouns, connects us with the peoples and nations of the earth. This is the pattern of naming that I've called the pneumatological pattern, which praises the Trinity using forms of expression and thought that are already at home in diverse contexts. In John and Charles' day, the Wesleyan movement was a, a revival movement, renewal movement within the Church of England, overwhelmingly uh, white and Anglophone. Today, the Wesleyan movement has expanded from its original setting to uh, include 80 million adherents worldwide, most of whom are not uh, in this part of the world at all, but are in Africa, Asia, Australia, Pacific, uh, and, and elsewhere. And as the church has expanded, so too has its ways of naming the persons of the Trinity. So in an Indian context, the theologian Abhishek Tananda has uh, proposed Sat Hit Ananda. The Chinese theologian Paul Chung, Dao, Dei, Chi, Ruth Duck, Womb of Life, Source of Being, Life of Life, and Death of Death. Um, Tanzania, Charles Niamidi, parent ancestor, brother ancestor, Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I particularly like the last one um, from a Vietnamese Christian, Lam Thien Lok, whom I've had the privilege of getting to know personally. He advised me that Vietnam is an extraordinarily hot country. And so this way of naming the Trinity is uh, appealing to him. Mountain peak, cool air, Freshness. The, the cool, refreshing air that comes down from the mountains and brings the refreshing air down into the hot valleys of Vietnam. So we've got the church as an ecosystem of praise in solidarity with Israel, also in solidarity with all the nations of the world, because the language that it uses to praise God draws on these uh, experiences and concepts that are already present. But it is indeed united in a new spiritual kinship community. 
And here I think it is so important, and here, as the church is the body of Christ, to bear in mind an emphasis that we find time again, that the body of Christ is not a homogenous community, but a differentiated community, as bodies are. The church is a new spiritual community, new birth by God's love in Christ, which reconciles Jew and Gentile, but does not do away with their differences. It brings Jew as Jew into community with Gentile as Gentile and thereby creates something new, the spiritual community of Christ. And we, if we talk about the spiritual community of Christ as Christians over against the world, we mask the way in which actually the church is an ecosystem of solidarity in and with and for the world, bringing people together into a new spiritual community. And I'm not making this up, I don't think. Uh, Paul says something along the same lines. Um, we are all members of the body, uh, yes, and it's how many bodies is it? Well, it's one body, but it's one spirit, and in this one body there are Jews or Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And of many. So we look at the name of the Trinity in Wesleyan perspective, and we discover that it's an ecosystem of praise and solidarity. Now to finish, I want to do one case study. And this particular case study is going to focus on um, an, a relatively unknown uh, but absolutely magnificent evangelist of the 19th century, Zilpha Elaw. Zilpha Elaw uh, is born in Pennsylvania to a free family. And she came to faith through a Methodist class meeting. She was actually a servant in a Quaker home, and the Quaker family gave her permission to, uh, to attend Methodist class meetings. And in the course of the Methodist class meetings, she uh, became a convicted Christian and went on to lead a most extraordinary evangelical career, preaching throughout the eastern seaboard of the United States, um, going down in the 1830s and 40s and preaching south of the Mason-Dixon, which was uh, put her own liberty in peril. She, she could have been arrested. She had no rights that she could put uh, assert in front of a court of law. And finally carrying her ministry over to uh, England and preached for a number of years in England. And her memoirs have come to us as uh, uh, the Memoirs of the Life, Religious Experience of Miss Zilpha Elaw, an American female of color in 1846. Well, I want to just acquaint us with some of the language that Zilpha uses. The, interestingly enough, the Tetragrammaton or Jehovah plays a very significant role in her conversion experience. She relates how, as a child, she takes the name of the Lord in vain out there on the playground or in the dust, you know, 
takes the Lord's name in vain. And that very night, the angel Gabriel came and proclaimed that time should no longer be and said Jehovah was about to judge the world and to execute judgment on it. So it sets her whole experience in an apocalyptic eschatological framework where the one God's coming to establish his righteousness. Oh Lord, what shall I do? I'm unprepared to meet thee. I meditated an escape, but I could not effect it. And in this horrific dilemma, I woke. The day was just dawning, and the intense horror of my guilty mind was such as to defy description. Words that only a nine or 10-year-old, I think, could, could experience as a result of having cursed, said a curse word the previous day. But uh, we can't trivialize it. It's a turning point in her experience. I, and she relates, I distinctly saw the Lord Jesus approach me with open arms and a most divine and heavenly smile upon his face. And he said, thy prayer is accepted. I own thy name. And from that day forward, Zilpha never entertained a doubt of the manifestation of his love to my soul. And reflecting on these very events later, she wrote, O adorable Trinity, dispose me to do thy holy will in all things. Okay, so a very important role in her spiritual autobiography. But so too is the kinship language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The baptismal language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is absolutely central to her conception of who she is and how she can go about being an evangelist as a black woman in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, even in the South. How come? Because it's the foundation of her identity as defined by the spiritual community of God that defines who she is in a way that is independent of, that challenges, that sets in question the various ways in which she would be defined by her culture. So uh, she frequently, and, and, and like Charles, this particular form of language is associated with being brought into a new community of love. I shall never forget the heavenly impression I felt on that joyfully solemn occasion when I was baptized. I was so overwhelmed with the love of God that self seemed annihilated. I was completely lost and absorbed in the divine fascinations. And Zilpha, I don't know what, if she were here, um, I'm almost glad she's not. Uh, she, she has a very healthy dose of skepticism about the value of certain forms of theological education. Unless they're undergirded by spiritual experience. Uh, uh, and so let's look at number five. Everyone who really desires that his ministry may be effectual to convert and sanctify men must attend to himself first to see that he hath continual communion with the Father, with his Son, and that he lives and walks in the Spirit, is led by the Spirit. He who would be a master in Israel should possess such an experimental knowledge of the Christian religion as a university cannot bestow, but which is the exclusive endowment of the Holy Ghost. And for her, this is the center point of her, uh, her spirituality. And number four, my delights were to follow the leadings and obey the dictates of the Holy Spirit. I richly uh, enjoyed the spirit of adoption. 
I claim God as my father, his son Jesus, and my dear friend, who adhered to me more faithfully in goodness than a brother, and with my blessed Savior, Redeemer, Intercessor, and Patron. Uh, Zilpha was one of about 18 or 19 children. Um, she herself had one child, uh, a daughter, and her daughter accompanied her in her travels, in her evangel uh, travels as an evangelist. All right, we come now to the portion of her thinking that I really want to highlight, and that is the way she names the Trinity with common nouns drawn from ordinary experience. And as a, a background to this, I want to bring to our mind um, a famous example of this of Augustine, De Trinitate. And Augustine uh, gives us an, a, a way of naming the Trinity that actually does not aspire to begin with the Trinity, but begins with vestiges of the Trinity in the created world. Where in our experience of creation do we encounter something that permits us to gain insight into the Trinitarian character of God? And uh, Augustine explores a number of different triads, but one that he finds exceptionally illuminating is the triad of lover, and what is loved and love. And this is number seven on your handout. And the language of what are lover and what is loved and love has been yeast in the Christian tradition from that time to the present day. Well, just we'll hold that in mind and uh, we'll see how what Zilpha does. Um, the quotes I'm going to relate are going to serve the purpose of helping you visualize what her experience was as a person who traveled. And um, number nine, the pride of white skin is a bauble of great value with many in some parts of the United States who readily sacrifice their intelligence to their prejudices and possess more knowledge than wisdom. Um, she did not mince words. Uh, Ten. It is a fact but too well known that an attempt to expel covetousness and worldly pride from white communities by subjecting such offenders to the discipline of the church would fill with confusion and crumble to ruins every denominational superstructure in Christendom. All right. So Zilpha, having made her way to England, uh, was introduced to an anti-slavery society in London. I found my situation rather awkward in reference to the latter body. Their dignity appeared so redundant that they scarcely know what to do with it all. <laughs> they treated me as the proud do the needy. In this, however, they were mistaken. on being told by an Englishman that we do not allow women to preach. And this is not Zilpha herself. This is Julianne Jane Tillman, a, uh, a woman preacher in the uh, African Methodist Episcopal tradition. But I have used that illustration just to give us kind of a picture of the era. We do not allow sounded very uncouthly in my years in matters in which the commission of the Almighty is assumed. I again related some of the manifestations made to me by the Holy Ghost in reference to this matter. 
To which he replied that he could not see how God could, consistently with himself, give me such directions. Doubtless he said the truth. For the line of worldly wisdom, self-sufficient reason, and opinionated faith can never gauge the operations of the Spirit of God and always either rejects them at once or meets them with, how can these things be? On the occasion of her preaching in antebellum Virginia before crowds of whites and blacks. This is a, a depiction of, uh, in R Richmond, Virginia, titled Slaves Waiting for Sale. Pazilfi uh, Elaw herself actually preached in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, which is where I reside. The slaveholders thought it surpassingly strange that a person and a female belonging to the same family stock with their poor, debased, uneducated, colored slaves should come into their territories and teach the enlightened proprietors the knowledge of God. And more strange still was it to some others when in the spirit and power of Christ, that female drew the portraits of their characters, made manifest the secrets of their hearts, and told them all things that ever they did. This was a paradox to them, indeed. For they were not deficient of pastors and reverend divines, and yet the power of truth and of God was never so manifest as with the dark-colored female stranger who had come from afar to minister amongst them. So what kind of naming of the Trinity is going to emerge out of this sort of experience. She uses the language of Jehovah. She uses the language of kinship, Father, Son, and Spirit. We remember that Augustine looks for a positive analog of the triune life and finds it in lover, beloved, and love. Zilpha Elaw also finds an analog of the Trinity, but it's not a positive one. It's, oh, the abominations of slavery. Though Philemon be the proprietor and Onesimus the slave, yet every case of slavery, however lenient its afflictions and mitigated its atrocity, indicates an oppressor, the oppressed, <coughs> and the oppression. Her experience of the Trinity illuminates her context. What she identifies in using the common nouns that are relevant to her context is a distortion of the relationship of lover, beloved, and love. Augustine's way of naming the Trinity points to the triune persons as lover, beloved, and love, the Holy Spirit. Zilpha Elaw's way of naming the Trinity points to the persons of the Trinity as liberated, liberator, liberated, and liberation. Uh, for Zilpha Elaw, in the case of Zilpha Elaw, we have an example of what a Wesleyan understanding of what it means to hear and respond to the name of the Trinity. 
It is an ecosystem of praise in critical solidarity with the world. Thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.